Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of four rounds of frightening fiction about disturbing diseases, cryptic contracts, mysterious motives and curious conditions. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Jessica Slavko, Stephen Long, Joshua L. Hood, and Christopher Mallory, our voice talents, Melissa Exelberth, Jonathan West, Sariana Gregg, and Joe Walls. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight was written by Jessica Slavko and is voiced by Melissa Exelberth. In it, we'll meet a woman whose husband is suffering from a bizarre medical condition, trapped in a race against time, hoping to find answers before it's too late. Without further ado, I present to you Pins and Needles. 
started three years ago on September 15th. I remember because I was officially on the first day of my second trimester of my pregnancy. My husband Daniel woke up in the middle of the night complaining that his feet were tingling. Just like pins and needles, he said. Later, he said he thought he felt a bug or something. Of course, all you have to do to immediately rouse me and get me out of bed is say the word bug. We checked the bed completely, and when we were sure that it was insect-free, we climbed back into bed and went back to sleep. He complained about the tingling for the next month, that it was intensifying. God, the, the tingling is driving me crazy. It, it's getting worse. Is there anything we can do to stop it? We took him to a podiatrist who sent him to a chiropractor who sent him to a nerve specialist who couldn't find anything wrong and suggested that we see a podiatrist. We were so frustrated. The paralysis began two months after the tingling. Daniel said it started in his toes. He could still feel his toes, he just couldn't move them. After four days, my husband could no longer walk. That morning when I got up, he calmly told me he was completely numb from the knees down and that we needed to call 911. He was admitted to the hospital and put under intense observation. Again, we got no answers. Specialist after specialist examined my husband and no one told us anything. A week and a half after being admitted to the hospital, the nightmare truly began. I was at the hospital as often as I could be. Every waking free moment I had was spent with my husband. The paralysis was now accompanied by an ache that kept him awake at night. I had gone home for the night because I had work in the morning and needed rest. I kissed my husband and told him how much I loved him, and then I left. I got home, hit the bed, and was completely out. At 5.30 a.m., my husband's primary doctor called me and told me that I needed to come to the hospital that Daniel's condition had changed. When I walked into my husband's hospital room, I nearly vomited. The smell of putrid meat filled the room. My husband's curtain was drawn and the doctor was just coming out from behind it. He escorted me out of Daniel's room and into his office. I could never have been prepared for what this man said next. He explained to me that my husband's feet had begun to die. It had started with his toes and had moved to the ankles in only a few hours. The paralysis had crept up his spine and into his chest. Through it all, he remained conscious, but was put on a respirator to keep his breathing stable. Just in case, the doctor assured me. The doctor was very pale and the bags under his eyes indicated that he had lost just as much sleep as I had. He started trying to discuss options, but all I wanted was to see my husband. He was scared and alone. When I was finally allowed in the room, I was accompanied by three doctors, two nurses, a medical student, and the state medical examiner. My husband looked drained. His once bright eyes were red-rimmed and filled with pain. And the smell. Oh, God, that awful smell. Never in a million years could I explain the smell to you. It stayed in your clothes, your hair, on your skin. It was awful. And the smell was coming from my husband. He said he could feel it, where the dead flesh met the living. 
He howled as the doctor tried to examine his feet. God, don't touch it! Don't! Please don't touch it! I held his hand and stroked his sweat-drenched hair. He cried. He screamed. He begged the doctors to cut them off, that he couldn't take it. His exact words were, I can feel my legs dying. And he could. The medical examiner explained to me that this was no infection. His body was literally decomposing as if it had been dead for a week. There was no reason for it to be happening, but my husband was rotting slowly from the feet up. There were countless surgeries. They amputated. The rot started again almost immediately. They tried antibiotics, steroids, stem cells, everything. When the pain was too much, they put Daniel on a morphine drip. He was out of it most of the time, but I felt a bit better knowing he didn't feel much. Eventually, the rot took his legs completely and started in on his torso. The pain was too much then. Nothing touched him. Daniel was constantly screaming while he was awake, begging to die. Every time I saw my husband, he pleaded and bargained with me to kill him. He thought of so many different ways I could kill him. The man I was so desperately in love with was begging me to end his life. Put a pillow over my face. A short time later, the doctors put Daniel into a medically induced coma, and the rot quickly overtook his body. He was dead in six days. I gave birth to our only son 32 days later. I had watched the love of my life waste away. He never met his son. He died right in front of me. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't comfort him. No one can or will tell me anything about it. I'm so lost and alone. I've spent countless hours researching. I've gone to three different countries trying to find answers. I want to know what killed my husband. I want to know why he had to die such a painful, terrible death. But now I'm more than curious, and not just looking for closure. Now I'm desperate to figure out what it was and stop it. I have to know. I have to know how to stop it. This morning, my three-year-old told me his toes started to tingle. Just like pins and needles, he said. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Pins and Needles, as written by Jessica Slavko and voiced by Melissa Exelberth. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by author Stephen Long 
and performed by Jonathan West. In it, a man is made an offer he can't refuse, but as is often the case, he demonstrates that you really need to read the fine print on your contracts before signing them. Without further ado, I present to you The Thief. A kleptomaniac is a person who can't help but steal, and they can almost be forgiven for it. Me? Well, I'm a thieving bastard. I don't have to steal. I don't need to. But I like to. I don't have any excuses either. An excuse would suggest that I felt in some way guilty. Which I don't. Not me. If a shop or store doesn't have the right security, or some idiot doesn't have his wallet in his inside pocket, well, uh, then they pay a stupid tax. About three years ago, I was taking a walk along the high street when I noticed a new shop had opened. It was a small bric-a-brac shop full of normal old furniture, paintings, timepieces, and old coins you'd expect to find in such a place. Walking in, I noted only one old man behind the desk, and after a few minutes concluded he was the entirety of the staff. Yeah, it was time for me to have a little fun. I found a small pocket watch, which felt old, cast iron, and almost industrious. That'll do, I thought turning to see that the lone shopkeep was even kind enough to have his back to me. Think about it. Here he is. He's new in town, just opened shop, and won't even acknowledge his first customer. Well, his tough luck, I thought, as I pocketed the watch and calmly strolled to the door. I think the phrase is blunt force trauma, but I'm not sure. What I am sure of is that getting a big oak table leg wrapped around the back of my head was both blunt and more than a bit traumatic. I was probably only down for a minute or two, but by the time I was back on my feet and a bit more with it, the shop owner was between me and the door, holding the biggest fucking knife I'd ever seen. Boy, you wanna make sure you know who you're stealing from before you try! You put, you put that watch in your pocket and clear side of my little camera. Right there. He pointed to where he previously stood, where I thought he couldn't see me. Pointing at the wall, he revealed a security camera that pointed right at the spot where I had pocketed the watch. You even walked slow enough for me to turn the camera off and grab something to brain you with, you silly little shit. I was caught, hands down. I asked the shop owner in, I must confess, a very pathetic voice if he'd called the police. He replied in a softer voice this time. Son, I got you red-handed and old tape. Here's the deal, son. I have a close friend who is a parish priest of the church up at the top of the high street. What I want you to do is a go confession. Tell them not just about today, but about all your sins and carry out your penance. I'll call him say he should expect you there tonight at nine. The shopkeeper, an old graying man, but well over six foot five with a big frame and also holding a massive knife, had given me a pass. All I had to do was go to confession, tell the priest my sins and knock out a few Hail Marys. Oh yeah, I agreed. We amazingly exchanged a polite goodbye, and I was out. 
Thinking about what happened made me laugh as I walked home. It had been just under a year since the last time I was caught, and instead of spending a few months all expenses paid in a lovely prison, all I had to do was an evening down at church. Nine o'clock rolled around and I found myself sitting in the small confession booth. It took Priesty Boy forever to begin. Well, for ten minutes at least, I could feel his gaze through the cross-hatched partition in the booth. I'll be honest, it was a little unnerving. Eventually he spoke. You may begin when you are ready, my son. At that moment in time, for some reason, the shop owner's words came to my mind, and I decided to have some fun. Bless me, father, for I have sinned. It's been eighteen years since my last confession. At the twenty-minute mark, I could tell old Priesty Boy was getting more and more impatient for me to finish confessing, oh, in vivid detail, every single thing I had ever stolen. I ended at the eighty-minute mark, feeling quite content at being able to gloat about, sorry, confess about all my sins to someone who was duty-bound to sit and listen. Is that all, my son? He spat out in a far less content voice. Yes, father, it is, I replied in a chirpy, smug voice. Now, how many prayers is all that gonna set me back? I asked. That's when it went a bit crazy. The priest opened the partition and stared at me for a minute or so, eyes squinting and face screwed up in what I thought was a temper. He held out his right hand and said, Take this, my son, handing me a black stoned rosary. Your penance is within these beads, and will take ye five years. I laughed, counting that there were sixty beads, and what I guessed was supposed to be Jesus at the bottom. So, what, I have to say one prayer a month, or sixty prayers a day? What prayers am I meant to say? Anyway, the, our Father, Hail Mary, the glory be, I asked the priest, putting the rosary around my neck. Old priesty boy's face slowly began to unscrew and his eyes began to widen. His mouth turned from a scowl into a grin and it frightened me to my very soul. The priest, now adopting a sarcastically quizzical tone, said, Glory be. Hail Mary. <laughs> no, 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 my son. <laughs> Prayer has no place here. Nor does the Virgin Mother, the Saints, or the Savior, or the Father. As the words left his mouth, I began to feel the beads of the rosary become coarse. In vain, I tried to remove the now stuck fast chain. The Trinity and its angels and their prayer and their mercy are no longer for you, my son. Have you ever felt so scared that it felt almost like a fire spreading up through your veins from your chest out to your limbs? The baseline shot of terror that hits you in an instant of shock but instead of fading, holds tight its grip on you, almost pushing your blood vessels to burst under the pressure. Yeah, well, that's how I felt. Fighting the bile, coating the base of my throat, I managed to ask, So what's my penance? The priest coldly put his hand on my shoulder. Once a month, you must kill somebody. And not just anybody. It must be someone who has shown you kindness. You must kill them and bring me their heart. Maybe my fear hit critical mass. Maybe my survival instincts began to kick in. Or maybe I am indeed just 
just a bastard. But after he told me this, I began to think in a sadistic but logical way. I was still scared, but my logical thoughts were telling me I was in no position to get myself out of this. If the ever-burning feeling on my chest coming from the beads was as immovable as they felt, and with that being the case, I thought I'd better get the ground rules for this setup clear. I took a deep, labored breath and began to ask Priesty Boy a few questions. Four questions, to be exact. My first question was, what would constitute an act of kindness? The priest answered that it could be anything from a doctor's treatment to a kind word. My second question was, who exactly is the figure on the base of the rosary? And I'm pretty sure by now that it's not fucking Jesus. The priest answered, that, son, is your new lord, our lord, and you would do well to hold him in reverence. The third question I asked was, what happens to me if I fail? His eyes lit up with sadistic glee as he answered. Each of the beads on your chest are, as you by now well aware, embedded into your chest. They will continue to embed themselves further and further into your chest until they reach your heart. And I am sure I don't need to tell you what will happen when they do. Oh, not to worry too much, my son. They will take five years to reach your heart. But for every heart you bring to me, one of the beads will drop out of the chain and out of your chest harmlessly. The chain and the symbol of our Lord, however, will remain harmless, but forever with ye. And my son, to answer your question, if you should fail, then you will be before the Lord himself, and will have to answer to him. Let me warn ye. Our Lord has no time for compassion or for second chances. That sure as hell cleared that up, didn't it? For a minute or two, I stood before the priest and simply wept. Wept of the hopelessness of my situation. Cried for my fate. Hot, wet tears ran down my cheeks as I thought of the fate that awaited me should I fail in this horrid, hellish task. After that, though, I think I must have cracked. I felt hopeless, resigned my fate, and the only thought left in my head was, I'm sure I can make something from this. With this thought, I ask my last question. So if you just, if you just want the heart, can I have the rest? The money, valuables, you know, all that. Old priesty boy smiled and said, My son, all I want is the heart. Once I have that, no one will investigate their death or even remember the wretched soul. So, by all means, take whatever you want. The priest gave me a small wooden box. The box was ebony and had a latched lock, a red velvet lining, and a plain wooden handled knife inside. My last instructions before I left were that I was to return within four weeks with a human heart within the box. The heart had to be cut from the body with this knife, and this knife alone. Old Priesty Boy assured me that once the heart was in his possession, then there would be no repercussions for the murder. And as he stated before, what I did with the human and material remains 
were of absolutely no interest to him. The first one was hard. I had to keep my now counterproductive humanity in check whilst I found someone to be kind enough to me that would allow me to kill them. It took me two weeks of thinking and nerve building to do my first. A homeless shelter. I arrived unshaven, clothes ripped, and stinking to high heaven. The man at the desk asked if I needed any help and was more than kind enough to show me to where I could bed for the night. I slept in the shelter for three nights in the stench and the lowliness of humanity's wretches. I hated them. Too stupid or too proud to steal, but pathetic enough to beg at some master's table. Two days and nights I was there. That's how long it took me to work out the desk worker's shifts and where he parked his car. Two days to work out where he lived. I'm not bad at this. He was an old short man. He had such a warm and caring smile. And he folded like cheap lawn furniture when I belted him with the handle of my knife. He had just unlocked his door and was halfway through the threshold when I did it. Seconds it took before I was inside, door closed and locked behind us. I kicked him in the jaw first. Couldn't have him making noise now, could I? After a few boots to the head, he passed out, and I got the box open and ready. I cut his throat and left him to bleed out while I searched his house for money or something to fence. Three hundred bucks and a gold watch. Not bad. Now, if you think anything like me, I'm sure you're thinking two questions, and I'll answer them both. First, yes, I did leave him to bleed out, so the heart would not be beating and there would be less chance of botching the removal. Clever. Second, no, I didn't think to get his ATM card and pin before I cut his throat. Not so clever. But it was only my first. I knew better for the next time. The second one. Again, a homeless shelter. This time I had to only endure the place for one night before following the nice young volunteer home. She must have been in her late twenties. Oh yeah, I think mommy and daddy must have been paying her way for her whole little life because she had one hell of an apartment that was within walking distance. Now, I'm not making fun of her for being a pampered little shit, no. I mean, it got me 700 bucks from her apartment and 2100 from her ATM card throughout the week. This second one got me thinking. No, not about that. And I told you... I don't have excuses. If people don't check behind them when they unlock their door, or don't know how to disarm a man with a knife, well, yeah, they pay stupid tax. No, it got me thinking that I should be hitting rich people. What the priest had told me about the lack of repercussions was right. I'm even still living in my eighth victim's house as we speak, typing this shit out. What I had to do was find a way of getting very well-off people to be just a little kind to me. Then I could cut out their heart and harvest their wealth. I mean, the answer was easy. Manners. People are so stupid for manners. It can just be a thank you for holding the door open. Or getting on the bus with a crutch and somebody giving up their seat for me. Although, I'll be honest, bus kills are not very profitable. But mainly, I hit the big posh hotels or hospitals. A lot of money in hospitals. 
Doctors find it hard to refuse helping people. Fuck. Doctors are the jackpot. Fifteen-hour shift, follow them home, and they're far too tired to put up a fight. Ooh, I love doctors. So caring. So kind. So rich and easy and weak and as pathetic as the rest of them. You may think I'm a bastard, but you have to admit I can make the most of a bad situation. Truth is, I wouldn't change this life for the world. I get to steal and kill and I never have to worry about the law even looking for me, let alone catching me. Now I treat it like a job, but the kind of job you wake up to in the morning and you can't wait to get to. I love the feeling of cold steel piercing weak flesh, the gurgle in the throat. <laughs> and I am so close to being able to look at the pathetic, why me, expression on their faces without feeling hatred for them. Close, but not there yet. Now then, I'm nearing the end of my little confession. And I will answer the question that by now you must be asking yourself. Why confess? The answer is simple. Ego. I am now the world's greatest thief. And nobody knows about it. Yeah, but anyway, that's my cross to bear. We mustn't grumble at life's hardships now, must we? Oh, thank you, by the way, for taking time out of your life to read my little chunk of memoirs. It was very kind of you. Thank you. You have been very kind. I hope you enjoyed The Thief, as written by Stephen Long and performed by Jonathan West. Up next, we've got a third dose of darkness for you, in the form of a tale from author Joshua L. Hood, and it's brought to life by voice actress Sariana Gregg. Without further ado, I present to you False Prophet. thought Sandra Mandelini hit the bottle after she saw the skinless teenager walk into her room in the middle of the night. A vision like that would have made anyone a little thirsty, <laughs> so no one really blamed her. Later, we found out that she'd actually taken up brown bottle therapy a few days earlier, on the night that she'd spun her car off the road, killed that kid, and then dumped his body in the canal. Road rash and some hungry fish had done a number on the corpse of Tex Weber. It would have been damn near unidentifiable if Sandra hadn't come along with the details that linked the body to the missing teenager. Sandra claimed that Tex had told her he'd been killed in a hit and run and that his body could be found at the bottom of the Fifth Street Canal. The idiot detectives thought that psychic Sandy had gotten her groove back. She led them to the isolated country road where the accident happened, gave specific details on his dress and description, and ultimately led them to the pump gate where poor Tex had washed up 
after she'd heaved his hopefully lifeless corpse into the water. She said she'd gotten the info from the ghost of Tex himself, said he'd come walking out of the shadows in the corner of her room and stood at the end of her bed telling her exactly how it happened. No, Tex didn't know who had done it. That part would remain a mystery for some months to come. Very convenient. After the body was recovered, Sandra disappeared into the Redhorn Saloon for several hours. Who could blame her, really? Sandra had nailed some readings in the past. About a year before the incident with Tex, there were a couple of lost campers, a runaway five-year-old, and the story that started it all, a drunk homeless man crushed by an industrial garbage compactor after he'd crawled in for warmth. That was a total of three hits, and never you mind how many misses, a damn good record for any police psychic, and a phenomenal one for a country town made up of cowboys and preachers not prone to being open-minded in parapsychology. It was after the skinless kid that things really started taking off for Sandra. Hit after hit, Sandra was solving crimes at least once a month, and big ones too. It was almost as though the booze was high-octane and her psychic powers were a sports car just out of the shop. It wasn't until much later that we figured out how Sandra had gotten so good at what she did or why so many people were winding up dead. Part of it was our fault. All the damn stories we printed just kept encouraging her. We should have known better. The rest of it was the cops' fuck-up, though they can't really be blamed. There are so few female serial killers, after all. Now, after last summer, you're probably familiar with the name Sandra Mandolini. Her crimes kept the cable news hucksters busy for months. You may remember how she was tormented by one string of killings that she just couldn't solve. Even after all the criminals she'd helped lock away, she just couldn't nail down the needlepoint killer. The experts say that she must have committed at least nine murders altogether. Six as the needlepoint killer, and three more to cover her tracks. I may just be the local interest columnist, but I pay close attention to this town, and I tell you now that the needlepoint killer had eight victims. Of course, Sandra never admitted to those last two, since Sandy wasn't actually the needlepoint killer. She was always cordial to me, despite my constant skepticism of her work. I think it was because she was reaching out to one of the few people who didn't buy into her psychic crime fighter bullshit. She was reaching out to someone who might actually see her for who she was. All the same, I was surprised to get a call one night asking me to meet her at the Redhorn. At this time, she was still riding the media high of finding Tex Weber. The perp was still at large, and I had just published an opinion piece urging the population to stop getting distracted with their hometown heroine and help bring the killer to justice. I'd done a hell of a number on her in that piece. Didn't hold back what I thought of her one bit. I may have been playing up the opposition for my own purposes, I'll admit it. Sometimes it's easier to build a rep by shitting on a local celebrity than actually working hard to find the truth. But that's beside the point. 
on the phone. She told me that she had another vision of Tex and that she needed a drink. I got to the saloon, and it was clear that she'd beaten me there by several rounds. It was 30 minutes to last call, so I ordered light. She wasn't known for drinking at that point, and I was surprised to see her bowing before so many empties. I told my recorder that the tortured hero on a barstool look made a great scene for print, but to make sure I didn't fall for it. By the time I made it to the bar, however, I wasn't so sure that it was an act. Something had crawled up and bit Psychic Sandy where it hurt. She was in a bad way. She spent the next half hour telling me some very convincing garbage about how she'd been woken up by the skinless boy again. He told her about the location of L.P. James, the notorious bank robber from 40 years ago who'd made a huge score two times over before disappearing forever. Most of the legend around L.P. James had grown up since that time. Some folks saw him as some sort of Robin Hood and liked to tell big stories about how their grandpa knew the guy. Others said that the mob had found his money and buried him in a shallow grave. (laughs) There were so many short bus conspiracy nuts out there making up stories about James that I wasn't sold on Sanders' account of how he'd been shot in the leg during his last heist and managed to crawl into an old, unused culvert near some cattle rancher's pond just in time to bleed out. I did, however, admire the balls it took to try and tackle a remote viewing of a folk legend and to a reporter to boot. <laughs> The booze had clearly overinflated her confidence. A very public fall from grace was coming, or so I thought. She was very matter-of-fact about the whole thing till she got to the point where she'd seen Tex. Then she damned two last shots and nearly shook herself off the barstool with fright. I'd seen her at the canal when they'd dragged up Tex, and even though she didn't look as scared as she was that night, I asked her point-blank why that was. Why so frazzled? Hadn't she already seen Tex's ghost once already? She hesitated and nodded noncommittally. She hadn't, of course, seen anything that first time. That was a lie. The second, well, that's when things took a spooky turn. The thrill of being the one to report her crash and burn passed through my mind, but ultimately lost out to pity. Thankfully for my career, I let it go. I told her there was no story here and drove her home. That was Friday. The Sunday edition hit the stands with front page spread of Sandra Mandolini smiling through a hangover and holding up a moldy duffel bag full of L.P. James's money. My editor couldn't decide whether I should be fired or laughed out of town for giving her the write-off, but at least I didn't go negative on the story. That's when I started suspecting something else was really going on. If I'd only known then what the front page didn't show, I would have probably given up any association I'd ever again have with Sandra Mandolini. Rolled up in her purse was a bloody canal water-soaked eighth-grade history report written on L.P. James, written by one Tex Weber, third period, track and field, part-time deceased. The history report didn't say where L.P. James's body was to be found, 
but on the back was a hastily scrawled map drawn by Sandra Mantellini. A terrified transcription scribbled in the darkness while the ghost of Tex Weber told her of unearthly things. If she wasn't already, Sandra had become an honest-to-God celebrity fortune teller that day. She didn't call me for a long time after I'd blown her off, but I followed the stories closely anyway. Two weeks later, she found the body of an old man asphyxiated in his own home by carbon monoxide. The press would eventually claim that Tex's death had given her the taste for blood and that the old man was just an escalation of her insanity. A tweak to the furnace. Then replace the live battery of the carbon monoxide detector with a dead one. It was all very simple in a town where no one locked their doors at night. At least they didn't before Sandra. Three weeks later, there was a string of pet nappings two towns over. Pile of dog carcasses were found under a trestle bridge by none other than Psychic Sandy herself. That one was a matter of urgency. If Sandra's powers hadn't solved the crime, the imminent stench certainly would have. The evening show shrink said she could have gone on for a long time just killing dogs and sick old people if she'd gone undetected, but she had to get the credit while it was still hers to get, and so she escalated again and became the needlepoint killer. A week after the dogs, the needlepoint killer struck for the first time. In their haste to secure their future humiliation, the first thing the police did was to turn to Psychic Sandy for help. She played out all the tricks. Fingers on her temples, crystal on a chain, all of it. But at the end of two aggravating hours, came up with nothing. She said she would consult her spirit guide that night, and presumably tried, but Tex wasn't feeling like talking. Three months later, I met Sandra again while reporting at the scene of the Needle's second murder. It was then that I coined the phrase Needlepoint Killer. I chose the name because it was both apt for the manner of killing and because it sounded cool. There were obvious similarities in the executions of the two murders, even though the victims had nothing in common. They were both immobilized by a syringe of horse tranquilizer to the back of the neck and then bled out through their carotid artery. Their stomachs and lungs were found filled with their own blood and their pants were pulled down. That's a pretty obvious pattern. Sandra didn't do much but puke in the corner looking very convincingly disgusted, I might add, though the smell of whiskey kinda threw off the ruse. It soon became clear that a serial killer was at large in the countryside, and our local psychic was helpless to stop him. She eventually called me again, many months and many crimes later. She said she had been seeing the ghosts of the victims whose crimes she'd solved, not to mention committed come and go from her house at all times of the night. She'd not slept in weeks, and the booze was getting to her. She asked if she could stay with me for a few days. It was odd that she would choose me. We weren't anything like friends, and surely she had better hookups on the police force. She said that she didn't want them to see her that way. (laughs) What can I say? I took pity on her. Of course, what she really meant was that Tex had told her to kill me. But how could I know that? Of all the stupid shit the press says, the thing that annoys me the most is when they call me a hero for killing Sandra Mandolini. 
If you ask me, the real heroes, Tex Weber. Think of the grits it must take to drag yourself back from the dead to torment your killer by making her kill more people to come back and haunt her. And on top of that, making her solve the crimes she committed right in front of the authorities so that she'd never get a break from the paranoia of it all. I don't know what he had on her or what a ghost can do to someone who doesn't do what they say. But before she died, she told me that he just kept making her do worse and worse things. They weren't always murder, and the crimes he made her solve weren't always her own. Sometimes, she said, he'd give her a reading that would save someone's life, only to remind her of just how much of a hypocrite she'd become. See, Tex had it all figured out. This could go on forever. <laughs> no rest for the wicked. This was about a year after Tex. Sandra had become a national sensation in the nutball community of paranormal enthusiasts. Her hot streak was still burning in every regard, except for finding the Needlepoint killer. The killer was up to six by the newspaper's count. Later victims seven and eight would be found in the river, but they'd be too fucked up to be attributed to the needle. The killings were botched, and our pride neighborhood serial killer didn't want the second-string victims on her lineup. I picked Sandra up from the Redhorn, where she'd become a fixture and a celebrity though in any other life she would have just been a corner post at the bar. I drank with her for a short time, but saved my wits for the drive home. On the way there, she showed me Texas history report. She said the blood was on it when he handed it to her that first night because he didn't have any skin. I reminded her that the revelation about L.P. James came from the second encounter with the dead boy and not the first. She didn't say anything. I think she came close to confessing, telling me and the world that she'd made up the first sighting to cover her ass and that when Tex actually showed up, he had a lot more on his mind than closure. Every time she looked like she would spill the beans, though, she started glancing around like someone who wasn't me was watching her. Once, a glance into the rearview mirror spooked and shut her up for almost five minutes straight. It took a long draw from a dented flask to get her feet back under her. I don't know what or who she saw back there, but by that time, the list of possibilities was pretty long. Wasn't until I was stabbing her repeatedly that she choked out her confession. That night, I heard her talking to someone. I'd offered her my room, but she said she wanted to be in the living room where it was less creepy. More doors, a TV, big windows for the street lamps to shine in. It didn't matter about that last part, though, because she kept the lights on all night long. She'd offered to sleep in bed with me, and I realized just how big of a wreck she'd become when I broke it to her that I don't sleep with women, and she almost cried. She'd clearly become desperate. When the voices first started, I thought that she just turned the TV on. I couldn't make out what they said and tried to ignore them. Then it sounded like there was a dog barking in the living room. I was startled awake. It took some time before I realized why the sound disturbed me so much. It wasn't a normal bark. It was angry. But that wasn't all. It sounded strangely distant, like a bark in a tin can. 
but that somehow cut across the grain of what my ears might call normal hearing. It's hard to explain. I started down the hall to see who was in my living room, but froze before I rounded the corner. It was a full fucking house. There was the old man who she'd asphyxiated, a college student who'd fallen off a balcony, a pile of dead dogs, and, of course, good old Tex Weber, all standing weirdly around Psychic Sandy, who was curled into a praying ball in the middle of my now piss-stained couch. The crowd kind of faded in and out of view. The lights in the living room didn't do nearly enough to illuminate them as they circled rhythmically like kids playing Ring Around the Rosie about the couch. To say I saw them is less correct than to say I felt them through my eyes. In fact, I may not have seen anything at all now that I think back. Maybe the Red Horn has just been doping up their hooch. Maybe I only saw a roofed-up hallucination of what I expected to see after listening to Sandra wax paranoid on a car ride down a lonely stretch of highway in the middle of the night. I don't know, but suddenly I was a believer. The victims of the Needlepoint Killer weren't there, but of course I know why. I grew anxious and looked around with the sudden fear that I might see those eight pantsless corpses parading somewhere around in my house, too. They weren't there. I guess they just lacked incentive, or a ringleader like Tax, or maybe they just didn't know who killed them. I was very careful, after all. Probably it was because of Tax that Sandra's victims had come back to her. He was an energetic kid in the prime of his life, a natural leader, and apparently he was a little fucked up in the head, too. When I chose my victims, I chose ones that would have very little fight in them. I guess I did myself a favor there, because they still haven't shown up. The first thing I did was wait for the ghosts to go away. It took until about dawn, but eventually they faded for good. Sandra hadn't seen that I saw, and she began telling me that she knew where another killing was going to take place. Then she started apologizing and telling me that she had to do it, and she'd make it quick. I told her to shut the fuck up. Then I called her a few names that even serial killers don't like to spread around and slapped her hard across the face. She slapped back, which was enough to get a good fight started. After the living room was convincingly smashed up, I used a butcher knife and went about ending her little reign of terror. She crumpled into a sobbing pile of pain and apologies, spilling all her dark secrets, maybe in hope that a last-minute confession might save her soul or something. She professed over and over that she hadn't done the needlepoint killings, though not her. It wasn't her. I told her I knew that, but I don't think she got it. I had no desire to confess myself, so I didn't clarify and just continued with my work. It was not neat. Had to make it look like I was struggling. About halfway through the fight, I looked up and saw Tex in the corner. He was standing in a shadow, looking all sorts of pissed off. His rage was palpable in the room. It was eerie. I got the strong impression that he couldn't do jack about what I was doing because I never did anything to him. 
His rage was there, but it was somehow not able to get to me. I could tell that Sandra felt it hard, though. She fought like a devil when she saw Tex scowling from the corner. Oh, how she fought. It really sold the act I'd been putting on for the police a half hour later. Damn near gouged out my left eye. When I was done with Sandra, I got all my surgical tubing and syringes and splayed them out on the floor next to her purse. I put Texas history report half under the couch and then injected myself with a few drops of horse sedative from a syringe. I had to rip the needle out halfway through like I'd caught her in the act. It hurt like hell until the drugs started kicking in. It was potent stuff. A mostly unintelligible 911 call later, and the whole scene fell into place. I told them of how she confessed everything, thrown in a little white lie by adding the needlepoint killings to the mix, though I left out the bit about the two bodies in the river. That was my shame. Sure enough, the evidence in Dighton Sander was all over the place. The police just hadn't been looking hard enough. They'd gotten lazy with Psychic Sandy on the case and were in a hurry to put their reps back together. One week later, I was free from the hospital. A hero. I guess in a way, Tex did me a favor. He showed me that I was one bad killing away from ending up as a shriveled husk of a booze hound pissing myself on a stranger's couch. I knew I had to stop, even though I didn't want to. I keep reminding myself that I want less to be haunted by some kid full of bad voodoo than to go about my work. I still don't know what brought Tex back or how he did what he did, but the kid was good at it. I kind of admire him for that. So now, I take it one step at a time. It's getting easier. <laughs> Mostly. Maybe if I kick the murder habit, I'll quit smoking next. Now I hear that one's real tough. I don't fear that the truth will be discovered anymore. A long time has passed, and Sandy made a good patsy. There are conspiracies, of course, but I'm not afraid of those. After all, no one will suspect me. There really are so few female serial killers. I hope you enjoyed False Prophet, as written by Joshua L. Hood and voiced by Sariana Gregg. Up next, we've got a fourth and final dance with darkness on the docket, guaranteed to give you nightmares. From author Christopher Mallory and voiced by Joe Walls, we bring you a tale about a father accused of the most heinous crimes, but who insists upon his innocence. Is he the monster the authorities make him out to be? Or is something far more bizarre at the root of his predicament? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Ruined Sheets. The third time the police arrested me for child abuse, I tried to run from the crime scene, my son's bedroom, still clenching my boy's blood-soaked sheets. Officer Wallace slapped on the cuffs, then threw me into the back of his car as the paramedics were loading my emotional seven-year-old into an ambulance. 
Strapped to the gurney, face awash in gore, eyes wide, he reached out with both hands, breaking the paramedic's restraints. Daddy! Daddy! I slammed my shoulder into the cruiser's door and screamed. It was no use. Seconds later, the ambulance pulled away in one direction, then the cruiser went in another, while I continued thrashing around in the back, cursing the witness. Wallace stared into the rear view, paying more attention to me than to the foggy road ahead of him. After a while, I calmed down and closed my eyes. I knew what kind of treatment awaited me, but there was nothing I could do but play the game. At the station, Wallace and his partner showed me photos of my boy's bedroom. The brand new white sheets I had just purchased for him were stained bright red. Pools of crimson spread across the floor where the blood had flowed over the edge of his mattress. The walls looked as if they had cried red tears. Stalactites of slaughter hung in congealed masses from the ceiling. Complete carnage. No one should have survived. And yet... My boy did. I rolled my eyes, then slammed my chained fists on the table. It's not the first time. You aren't showing me anything I haven't seen before. Hatred burned in Wallace's eyes, the kind reserved for subhuman waste or disease-spreading rats. You hurt him in the past? Or are you saying you've hurt other children? He jumped up from his chair, grabbed my t-shirt, and stood within an inch of my face. The corners of his eyes spasmed as he clenched his jaw, baring his teeth. Give me a reason, you sick freak. Give me a reason. I knew then what kind of man I was dealing with and laughed, despite myself. A reason? Fine, how's this? Those pictures are mild in comparison to last time. And the time before that. And the time before, Wallace's partner whispered, What in God's name did you do to that poor child? Without turning away from Wallace, I said, Not another word until you let me see my boy. Wallace threw me back down into the chair. Get this piece of shit out of my sight! I sat up straight, smoothed my blood-splattered t-shirt, and did my best to keep a smug grin on my face. Being the monster they wanted wasn't easy, but I knew from experience he would likely hurt me if I tried to play the concerned innocent father card. The whole time I'd been thinking about my boy swarmed by social workers and doctors. Luckily, he knew better than to talk. Daddy had taught him well. After a sleepless night on a hard cot stinking of piss, Wallace's partner called my name and let me out of the holding cell. The paper he handed me had been stamped in red with the words, Charges Dropped. I collected my belongings, made a few quick phone calls, then stood outside waiting for a taxi in the thick morning fog. It had rained again, and the light mist blowing in the wind cooled my face. Freedom felt great. I couldn't wait to find my boy. Wallace came running out of the police station. I knew he wanted to rough me up, or worse. For fifteen minutes, he stared daggers into the side of my head. Finally, he said, The captain let you free, and he wouldn't tell me why. I nodded. Wallace took a step back. I don't know what the fuck is going on, but this isn't over. I nodded again, knowing exactly what he thought of me, knowing how confused and angry he would be without answers. 
Out of the corner of my eye, I watched him seething and wondered if the next time he put his hand on his service weapon, he was going to shoot me in the back of the head. The taxi pulled up. I let out a relieved sigh and climbed inside. Hospital, quick! The driver went to pull away. Well, no, wait, I said, and the car came to a stop. I wound down the window. Follow me if you want to see something. Wallace nodded, his face giving nothing away. I took the blank expression to mean he still wanted to kill me. I nodded back, smiled, then tapped the door, signaling the driver to go. At the hospital roundabout, my boy waited outside in a wheelchair, smiling. Two women in scrubs stood behind him, pale and visibly frightened. The second I exited the taxi, my boy, looking good as new, ran and jumped into my arms. The two women approached me almost cautiously while Wallace edged along to the side, mouth hanging open. I hugged my boy as if I hadn't seen him in years. What'd you tell them? Nothing, Daddy. Are we going to have to move again? I nodded. It isn't your fault. The old lady next door heard your screams before I could mask them. Wallace shook his head. He was... I saw... The how. One of the boy's doctors said, Once we cleared away all the blood, the other finished. We couldn't find a mark. Not a single cut, scratch, or bruise. Far as we can tell, he's a perfectly healthy little boy. My boy tugged at my sleeve. Can we go, Daddy? Yeah. I climbed into the taxi, still holding him tight. Wait! Wallace leaned in the window. Is this some sick joke? I saw what you did to that child. I saw the room. I closed my eyes. As you can see, he's perfectly fine. That doesn't make any sense. I never said it would. You told me you've done worse. Made it clear you've hurt other kids. I have that on tape. Listen to your tape again. I said I've seen it happen before. Wallace narrowed his eyes. Think you're smart? Throwing animal blood over a kid, mentally torturing him, that's enough to put you away. He smiled, leaned closer, and whispered, Even if it isn't, I won't let this go. I'll stop you myself. I hugged my boy tighter, remembered how sour events can turn when some would-be hero has it out for you based on preconceived notions and tinfoil hat theories about a child's well-being. My boy lost his mother to a vigilante, murdered to protect him from harm that she never inflicted. Since then, I've learned to adapt. My act at the supposed crime scene, my attitude at the station, the invitation for Wallace to follow, even what I would say to him next, calculated damage control. All of it to protect my boy. You want me dead, but you aren't the first person that's threatened me and my boy. I would tell you to leave it to the caseworkers, but, officer, have you taken a look around? Wallace turned toward the doctors. Where are they? Where's that man from social services? One of the doctors swallowed hard. Gone. Said there was nothing he could do. I bit my thumbnail, wondering how many more times I would need to deal with a situation like this. Tell him what you found, please, doctor. The doctors looked at each other, then at Wallace. We thought it had to be animal blood, one of them said. It wasn't, the other added. The blood is definitely human. It's my boy's blood, I said, and they know it. Both doctors nodded. 
Yes, we triple-checked, one of them said. The blood is a match for the child. The other stepped forward. Sir, we would like to keep him for some further tests. I sighed. No tests. Never again. Thank you both for cleaning up my boy. They nodded, then turned and walked back into the hospital, muttering something about devils and miracles. Wallace seemed to deflate. He knelt and stared at my boy. The rain had picked up again and it made it look as if he were crying. He opened his mouth, but I put up my hand. This has happened before so many times. He wakes up screaming and covered in his own blood, more than could fit in his little body. How am I supposed to believe this? I don't expect you to believe anything. I asked you here because I don't want you to be a problem for us. We need to move and change our identities again before the doctors send in their report. How often does it happen? Every few months. Sometimes every day of the week. It varies. The longest lapse was two years, four through six. When it happens, I clean him up. If we're caught, we leave. Fast. There are people who want to lock him up and study this. I can't let that happen. I look down at my boy. Besides, it's just an accident during the night. Nothing to be ashamed of, right, buddy? Right, daddy? I smiled. Wallace clicked his tongue. This is insane. Maybe so, but it's true. I press my palms to my boy's ears. I've been dealing with his condition since he was born. The blood used to terrify me, but it's not what scares me anymore. While waking him from the screaming, he's begun to speak. Wallace scratched his ear. He lowered his tone and said, What does he say? I press a little harder on my boy's ears. The blood debt will be paid. The blood debt will be paid. I took my hands away and nudged my boy playfully in the side. You ready to go home so we can pack? Ready! That's my boy. As the taxi pulled off, I thought about the 9mm backup plan locked in the safe at home. So far, I hadn't needed to take a life to protect my boy. I turned and nodded at Officer Wallace standing in the middle of the road, hoping that he'd stay away. He faded into the morning fog until there was nothing left except a clean, white sheet of mist. I hope you enjoyed Ruined Sheets, as written by Christopher Mallory and voiced by Joe Walls. Thank you for joining us for tonight's program. As a reminder, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs>
Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.